You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Said 1 Corinthians 11, my goal today is to get us ready to take communion. And so I want to prepare us for this moment where we are going to dip the bread in the juice um, at the end of the service. So 1 Corinthians 11 is where we're going to start. Verse 23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my body. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you see that word remembrance pop up twice in a couple of verses there. And if you want to think about what communion is and what it's doing, it is for the family of God to get together and to remind one another. It's a communal reminding sort of an event. It's for us to remind one another of all that God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, so that we're reminded of all the implications that has for our life. And then he goes on, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, in an, and I'm going to kind of try to highlight this phrase, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Unworthy manner. He's saying this, that there is a right and a wrong way to do communion. There's a right and a wrong way to do that. And it's got nothing to do with the mechanics of how you're doing communion and everything to do with your heart. The condition of your heart before God has got everything to do with that. And then he explains that in verse 28. So in light of that, having everything to do with your heart before God, verse 28. So let a person examine himself. Like open up his heart and to take a look in, which is going to be really uncomfortable for a lot of us, right? To, to open up our heart, open up our lives, and to take a good, honest look. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, now the Bible, when it's talking about judgment on himself here, the Bible is laying a real seriousness over communion, over what's about to happen here. Like God is really serious that we take this thing serious. So much so that look at verse 30. He says, for people who do this without examining themselves, without taking a good, honest look at their own life and heart to make sure they're in right relationship with God, for those people, he says this, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Can we just see that God is not playing around here? That God is really serious about this thing, that we do this appropriately, that we do this rightly. He's saying this, I'm killing some of y'all because you're not doing this right. That some of you are sick right now because you're not doing this thing right. Okay, so what makes it right or wrong is this idea of examining yourself. Communion is meant to be for those people who are in right relationship with God. That's who it's for. So he's saying, examine yourself. You've got to take a good, honest look at your heart. And it's not just taking a good, honest look at your heart. That's not the end game. It's not just knowing who you are and who you're not, where sin is, where it's not. It's taking a good, honest look at your heart, examining yourself, and allowing that to lead you to repentance, to a restored relationship with God, and then taking communion. So with that said, I want to spend a morning chatting with you about repentance. 
It is a big biblical theme, repentance. So let me just kind of unpack this from Genesis to Revelation, and then we'll jump into a a few specifics on it. So Genesis to Revelation, repentance is one of the overarching themes throughout the Bible. It is a big deal all throughout the Bible, repentance. This moment of us feeling the weight of our sin, the heaviness of our sin, turning from that sin and turning to Jesus in faith. That's repentance. And that is a big, big biblical idea. So in the Old Testament, the word for repent, the root word, is used over a thousand times. If you want to know what the message of the prophets were in the Old Testament, it was to repent, to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus. That's the message of the Old Testament. It's the message of the prophets. You open up the New Testament. The first person we have on the scene in the New Testament is our man John the Baptist. So John the Baptist comes preaching, and he's got a message that he's preaching. And if you want the one definitive kind of part of that message, it's repent. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Do you remember um, Jesus and his message? First words in Mark that we have recorded from the lips of Jesus, Mark 1, 14 and 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what? So repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is the message of Jesus. At the end of Jesus' life in Luke 24, he is commissioning his disciples. And he tells them this at the end of Luke 24, that you are to go and preach repentance to all the nations. Like This is what Jesus is about, this idea of repentance and belief in the gospel. I, I like how one pastor put it. One of my favorite guys, he said it like this, that without fear of preacherly kind of hyperbole or preacherly over-exaggeration, of which most preachers are really prone, right? So without fear of exaggeration, he says that in the mind of Jesus, repentance is the gateway to everything. The gateway to everything. Like it's repentance and faith in the gospel, belief in Jesus, that is the gateway to everything a believer wants in life. It's a gateway to right relationship with God, to peace with God, to reconciliation with God. Everything you want, repentance is the gateway for it. So we keep going on. Repentance is not just the message of Jesus. It's the message of the early church. Do you remember the sermon in Acts 2 where uh, Peter is preaching? And he's got this sermon that he does. You've got this big crowd that is hearing it. And it says they are cut to the heart. and, And they look at Peter and they say, what must we do? And he looks at them, and you remember what he says? Repent. Later on, Paul's preaching in Acts 17, and he's just finished the sermon. He's winding the sermon down, and this is how he winds the sermon down. The times of ignorance uh, God overlooked, but now God, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Paul is saying this, if you want to know what it's going to require of you to be right with God when when your time of judgment happens, you know what it's going to take from you? Repentance. This is what God is commanding. This is what God wants from us. Repentance, turning from sin and turning to Jesus in faith. That is the only thing that can make you right with God. Like your only way into a right relationship with God is through repentance. It is the prerequisite to reconciliation with God, of this walk and this journey with God. And on the back end, repentance is the way we stay right with God. It is the way that we continue a relationship with God, that we continue a restored relationship. It's both of those two things. Maybe you can think of it this way. Repentance is the definitive mark of a true Christian. Repentance is. 
It's interesting. Some of you who know your church history uh, know that Martin Luther was the guy that kind of sparked the whole Protestant Reformation. And he did that by nailing 95 statements to a church door. And here is the first statement of the 95 that sparked the, the Reformation. He said this, When our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, so when we're talking about repentance, of which Jesus talks a lot about, when our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. That all of our life, that like beginning to end should be full of repentance. That if you're a Christian, it, mean, it means that you repented past tense and that you are currently and constantly repenting present tense. That it's a both and, it's a whole life thing. I love how Charles Spurgeon said it. Because we never leave off sinning, amen to that? Since we never leave off sinning, we never leave off repenting. Those two go hand in hand. Maybe you could think of it this way. If you want to know what is one of the sure marks of you being a true Christian, what would be one of the sure evidences of like real and authentic grace landing on your heart? Like real evidence that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. If you don't know what one of those sure marks of that are, it's that you are a repenting person. That it's normal for you. This is what makes up life for you. That it's a constant thing. It's a consistent thing. It's a passionate thing. It's an urgent thing. That this is just normal life for you. So I, I think a lot of us have in our, mind, a, uh, in our minds a wrong definition of spiritual maturity. I, I think a lot of us, spiritual maturity equals how long have we gone without sinning? But I think a better mark of spiritual maturity is how often and how consistently are you repenting? Now just think about that for a second. That the better mark of spiritual maturity is, is repentance a continual theme of my life? Is my whole life made up of repentance? The question is not, are you sinning? The question is what happens when you sin? And the answer to that question leads to life or death for us. So this is the importance of repentance in the Bible. So with that said, I want to give four clarifying statements that kind of describe what true, authentic, real repentance is. What biblical repentance is. So four statements to describe this. Here's the first one. What is real, authentic repentance? Here's answer number one of that. And we could talk a long time about this. Here's one of four things that we'll talk about today. Number one, real repentance is not primarily about correcting behavior. Real repentance is not primarily concerned about correcting behavior, but about restoring a relationship. Okay, so when it comes to sin, I think one of the major misconceptions in the room goes like this with sin. That sin for us feels like an impersonal set of rules. Very impersonal. So let me just use a, a metaphor to kind of get us there. If you're like me, you sped on the way to church today. Hey, it's okay. There's grace, you know. You, you, you likely sped on the way to church. Um, and, and we could be talking like the, your neighborhood, it's 35, and you were going 37, sort of speeding. And you know what's crazy about that? I mean, that was me today on my way to church. I think I ran one stop sign too, which is not, which is not all that abnormal either. <laughs> it's 
like a roll sign, not a stop sign, right? And so but it's interesting because here's how my mind treats going 37 in a 35. It's not like it's hurting someone. I mean, it's a victimless sin, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a victimless rule breaking. It seems like an impersonal set of rules. I mean, I don't even know who made the rule that you can only go 35. I have no idea who that is. So I, I don't really feel that bad about going 37. I mean, 35 or 30, it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Because it's, it feels like a very impersonal rule. It's not like it hurts anyone. Now carry that feeling over with speeding. That is how many of us feel about sin in our lives. That it feels like a very impersonal set of arbitrary rules out here. But can we just see this morning, that is not how the Bible talks about sin. The Bible talks about sin as very personal to God. Like God is the author of those rules, and breaking those rules is a personal affront to God. Now, there are a lot of really wild stories in the Bible. So if you just start reading in Genesis and you make it through, you're going to see some really crazy things go down. Like one of my favorites is our man Elijah. He has a hair problem, Elijah, at the end of his life. He's going bald. And you've got some teenage boys that make fun of Elijah for going bald. You remember what he does? The Bible says he called down some, and I love this word, she-bears. Now, bear's bad enough, but a she-bear, you know you're in deep trouble. He called down some she-bears, and they came and mauled those kids, right? I mean, just why? Who puts that stuff in there? Now, if you want a story even crazier than Elijah and the bears, flip to Hosea. Hosea is one of the wildest stories in the Bible. Here's the storyline of Hosea. God looks at a, at a faithful man, Hosea, and he says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry Gomer. And here's uh, a quick aside, Hosea. Gomer is a prostitute. And, and Hosea, I want you to go and woo Gomer. I, I want you to go pursue her. I want you to run after her, for you to chase her, for you to win her heart over. And whatever you have to pay to make that happen, you do it. And Hosea does it. He goes, he finds Gomer, he pursues her, he woos her, he wins her over, and he marries her. Now just stop right there, and this would be the story that in like church world today, we would do a video of, and we would be showing how redemptive God is for a marriage and for people. I mean, it's a beautiful story. But then all of a sudden, Gomer falls back off the deep end. And all of a sudden, you find her outside of Hosea's home again. He is, she's run from Hosea, and she has sold herself back into prostitution. Okay. Now just take a second to put yourself in the shoes of Hosea. If I'm Hosea, you would literally have to, you'd be picking me up off the floor. I would be absolutely heartbroken. I mean, just imagine that for a second. Your wife, has, you've rescued her out of prostitution, and then you, you've treated her so well, and now she has run back out of your house, and she has sold herself to it again. I mean, can you imagine the heartache of that? I mean, an affair is not an impersonal sin, right? That is a very personal sin. That is a heart-wrenching sin. So th this is what we have going on in Hosea. And this is the primary punchline and point of Hosea. God looks at the people of Israel and he says, you see what just happened with this marriage? Hosea and Gomer, do you see this whole thing? 
We'll, we'll see what I'm trying to show you here. The picture of Hosea and Gomer is really a picture of me and you. I am the faithful groom, Hosea. And do you know who you are, people of Israel? Gomer. You are the prostitute who has all of these illicit loves and these affairs going on. And part of what God is trying to show us here is how personal sin is to him. It's not this impersonal set of rules over here. It is a groom who has rescued a bride and our sin to God feels like us, the bride, leaving him for other lovers. See, that's what your sin feels like. It's not an impersonal set of rules. It is our sin to God literally rips God's heart to shreds. That's what we're learning in Hosea. It's that personal. This is why Ephesians 4 says that that when we sin, it grieves God. That's an emotive word. Like God weeps over that. It hurts God. So so this is the picture of sin in in the Bible. And that's the picture of repentance. Repentance is not just you shaping up your conduct. See, Gomer could have shaped up her conduct and got out of prostitution, but had no love for Hosea. Still have hated Hosea. But that's not the picture of repentance. Repentance is not just shaping up and fixing your behavior. Repentance in the Bible is returning to the Lord that you have left. It's returning. This is why in the Old Testament, you had this continual refrain of the prophets to return to God. See, this is what repentance is. It's not just about you dealing with some of your behavior. It is about you letting go of your love affairs and you returning to the God that has redeemed you and rescued you. That's repentance. Here's the second thing about real repentance. First, it's not primarily about correcting behavior. It's primarily about returning to the Lord. It's relational. And secondly, real repentance requires a heartfelt conviction of sin. A heartfelt conviction. Like we are grieving our sin. Feeling the weight of that sin. And this is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 7. Let me read this for you. to be up on the screen uh, for you to get some easy access to it. But here's what Paul says when it, when it re, in regards to conviction and repentance. He says it this way in verse 10. He says, for godly grief, okay, now I want you to see that word godly grief in that verse. Godly grief, think about that on one hand. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So godly grief leads to repentance, leads to a life without regret, leads to that thing. Repentance leads to God, godly grief. But on the other hand, we've got this. He says, whereas worldly grief over here, so godly grief here leads to repentance. Worldly grief over here leads to to death and destruction and a life apart from God and away from God for all eternity. Godly grief, worldly grief. Now, I think that's interesting because I think a lot of us assume that when we sin, any grief is good grief. And are you seeing here that any grief is not good grief, according to the Bible? All tears about sin are not the same. All feeling bad, like remorse over sin, all remorse is not the same. All regret is not the same. All feeling really, 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 really bad about it is not the same. That there is a godly way to do that, 
And there is a worldly way to do that. Now, this is the ironic thing about it. On the surface, you can't tell which is which. It's impossible in the moment of grieving over sin to say, oop, that's godly grief and that's worldly grief. It's impossible to do that. Because here's the thing, they're unseen. Worldly grief and godly grief is an issue of the heart. So let me try to describe godly grief. Godly grief is feeling the weight of our sin. It's offense to God. We are seeing that that sin has ripped God's heart to shreds. And now, because we're seeing that it's ripped God's heart to shreds, it is now ripping our heart to shreds. This is godly grief. And that godly grief leads us not away from God, it leads us to God, where we get repentance. This this is godly grief. It leads to life in God and gospel. Now, worldly grief, on the other hand, is not so concerned about the sin and its offense to God. Worldly grief is primarily concerned with the consequence of that sin. Oh no, I got caught. Oh no, what's my wife going to think? What's my husband going to think? What are my coworkers going to think? What are they going to think of me now? What about the lost opportunities now because of this sin? See, worldly grief is dealing primarily with the consequences. Godly grief is dealing primarily with the sin and its offense to God. Maybe you could think of it this way. Worldly grief is produced from the consequences of sin. So here's the implication. When our grief is produced by the consequences of our sin, the implication is our grief is primarily about us. Are you seeing that? That that when, when you're crying and you're feeling really bad about this sin because of its consequences, it has nothing to do with God and everything to do with you. This is why it says it leads to death and destruction. But godly grief, on the other hand, is produced because of your sin and what it's done to the heart of God. So the implication is it's not about you. Godly grief is about God. See, that's the difference between worldly and godly grief. Worldly grief simply recognizes the consequences of sin and hates the consequences more and more. Godly grief recognizes the utter sinfulness of sin and hates it more and more. Worldly grief produces some regret that feels bad about past sin. Godly grief produces repentance that turns away from past sins. Worldly grief leaves you stuck in your circumstances. Godly grief leads you to God who can redeem your circumstances. Worldly grief deals with the symptoms of sin, not the disease of sin. It produces despair and bitterness and depression because it focuses on regret for the past, which cannot be changed, instead of personal sinfulness, which can always be forgiven. Okay, this is godly grief, worldly grief. Not all grief is the same. Not all tears are the same. Not all feeling bad is the same. It requires a grief that is rooted in the sinfulness of sin and its offense to God. If you want a great place to see this, we've talked about this a couple of times already this morning. It's Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches his sermon and he lays it on thick. And do you remember the response of the crowd? What must we do? The, the Bible says this, that they were cut to the heart. That is a picture of godly grief. It's when your sin cuts you to the heart. They holler out, what can we do? And, Paul, and Peter says, repent. That's what you can do. 
See, godly grief leads to that sort of conviction, that sort of sorrow, and it leads to repentance and life in God. This is godly grief. And listen, that grief is a prerequisite to repentance. And so can we just acknowledge this this morning? Grief and sorrow over sin are a beautiful thing. It is evidence that God is pursuing you and has caught you. See, when when you can sin and it produces no sorrow and no grief in your soul, it is evidence that to some degree God has let you go into your sin. Conviction in the Bible is one of the most precious things that a person can have. I'm talking like a heartfelt realization of just how sinful that sin is. A weightiness of sin. A heaviness that comes along with sin. That is one of the most precious things you can ever have in your life. Produced not because of the consequences of it, because of just how sinful sin is. The the Bible looks at that and says, what a gift. What a gift is that. So repentance, real repentance requires conviction. Here's the third thing. Real repentance requires confession of sin. Requires confession of sin. So let me try to articulate what confession is. Confession is agreeing with God against yourself. Confession is taking sides with God against you. As opposed to siding against God with you. Are you seeing what confession is? Confession is siding with God about your sin. It's agreeing with God about your sin. It's agreeing with God with just how sinful your sin is. This is confession. Rather than siding with yourself against God, it's siding with God against yourself. Confession. So so confession is that moment in a person's life where they stop blame shifting. where, Where their sin is not because of them and because of that person, because of that circumstance. Confession is that moment where your sin is because of you. It's it's that moment where we start rationalizing and justifying sin. It's that moment where we stop saying things like, well, it's really not that bad. And we realize it is that bad. See, this this is confession. When we start agreeing with God in how he looks at sin, rather than siding with ourselves in the way we want to look at sin. See, confession is that moment where you stop trying to protect your reputation, where you stop trying to protect your image and what people think of you, when you stop pretending and defending, that's confession. Now, we need to linger over this for a second because the truth is for every one of us in the room, confession is really hard to do, isn't it? Confession is hard. I hate confession. And you know why it's hard for all of us in the room? It's because deep down, we all, like deep down in our soul, we all really, really, really want to be right, don't we? I mean, we all want to be right deep down. This is why, like when the gaze of others hits our life, it feels so uncomfortable because they might just find out that we're wrong in something. It's the reason that when the fault line hits your life, that that's really uncomfortable. It's the reason, like this deep need or this want to be right, always right. It's the reason that when someone lovingly tries to point out a blind spot in your life, that little inner defense attorney comes out. You ever heard of that guy? You probably know that guy pretty well, right? That inner defense attorney. When somebody tries to point out a blind spot, that inner defense attorney comes out and says, oh, we're going to talk about my sin? 
Hey, what, what about your sin? I'm seeing a lot more of yours than mine. I mean, I don't know what you're seeing about me, but I'm seeing a lot about you. It's that little inner defense attorney. You, 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 you're familiar with that guy? He lives in you. I mean, you know that. He, he's buried down there somewhere. See, this is what makes confession so hard is that that little inner defense attorney that always wants to defend you, always wants to pretend for us, it is alive and well. That little deep-seated want to be right. It's funny, uh, right? Well, it's, it's kind of sad more than funny, but uh, I am trying to grow in self-awareness right now. Now, you just take that on as a job and see how, how that goes for you. But essentially, it's, it's me saying, I want to grow into seeing more of who I am, good sides, and more of who I'm not. That's really scary. I, I want to see more of my blind areas. I, I want to see more of those areas in my life. I'm just not aware of how they would hurt and maim people, how it comes off to me, all that. I just want to grow in self-awareness. And can I just tell you, I have a love-hate relationship with that. There's a part of me that loves it because I know I need it. But there's a part of me that absolutely hates it because it's so uncomfortable, isn't it? Okay, now, can I just tell you the only way we are ever going to be willing to deal honestly, like Paul says in this passage, to examine our heart, to grow in self-awareness, to see like who it is that we are, who it is that we're not, where major patterns of sin are in our life that we're probably unaware of. The only way that will ever happen, the only way that confession will be a normal part of your life is for you to be wide awake to all that Jesus is for you. That is the only way. See, let me give you the two sides of the gospel that will allow you to deal honestly with yourself. To other people, to be honest, to God, to be honest. Th th these two sides of the gospel will allow you to do that. Side number one, and I am continually right now having to remind myself of this. As I'm trying to grow in self-awareness, continually having to remind myself of these two sides of the gospel. Side number one. Side number one says this, Rodney, you are more wretched than you could ever imagine. You're worse than you think you are. You're worse than other people think you are. You're much worse. Here's how bad you are. Jesus actually had to die for you. That's how bad. So, so can, can, can you just see that there's nothing you're going to say about yourself or learn about yourself that is, that is worse than what Jesus has already said about you? that you are so bad that Jesus had to die for you? That's side number one. Side number two is, you, Rodney, you are so loved and cherished by God that Jesus was glad to die for you. And it is only when you are wide awake to both of those two things that you can actually own your own sin. You can actually take responsibility for it. I'd stop trying to defend Stop trying to pretend you're something that you're not. The only way you will ever be okay with saying, this is me, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. Here, here I am. The only way we as a church family will ever be able to do that is when we're seeing both sides of that gospel coin. You're worse than you think, so bad that Jesus had to die, and you're so much more loved than you think. So, so, so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you. Let me just remind you of this incredible reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's found in 1 John chapter 2. It's going to be on the screen for you. 1 John chapter 2, first two verses. Let me just remind you of something that, that can free you to just be honest with yourself. To not have to pretend to be better than you are. 
not have to defend when other people are pointing out areas in your life that you probably should be more aware of. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says this. It should be on the screen. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, that's going to be you, me. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Another word for that, a defense attorney. We, we have an advocate, a defense attorney with the Father. Here's his name, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, this is the reality for everyone in the room. You are far worse, a far worse sinner than you could dare imagine. You have been caught red-handed in your sin. And when that little inner defense attorney comes up and tries to convince you and other people that no, you're really not that bad. It's important for you to know, you really are that bad. I really am that bad. But here's the great news of the gospel, is we can suppress and, and let go of that little inner defense guy in there. And we can depend on Jesus, our defense attorney. Now here are the two primary arguments that Jesus makes on your behalf if you're a son or daughter of God. On my behalf. Here are the two arguments that Jesus makes for us. The first one is that word at the beginning of verse 2 there. Propitiation. That is a big theological word that you should get to know. It's in the Bible. You should, you should get to know what that word is. Propitiation is the, the idea. It would be Jesus saying this. Your sin deserves the wrath of God. That's what it deserves. The full fury of God, your sin deserves. All the justice of God, your sin deserves. And that fury and that wrath and that justice are coming for you. But Jesus is saying this in propitiation. I have become your propitiation for you. I have stepped in front of God's wrath. I have put myself in the way of God's wrath. God's wrath there, you back here. I have stood in between that wrath from God over your sin and you, and I have taken every last drop of the wrath of God. It's another way of Jesus saying, in me you are pardoned. Your sin has been dealt with finally and fully. It is gone. As far as the east is from the west, sort of gone. That's propitiation. But then he also says this at the end of verse 1. It says, Christ the righteous. So it's not just propitiation on one side. That's one argument. Our defense attorney, Jesus, his second argument is his righteousness. That it's not just that you have been pardoned. It's not just that your sin has been dealt with and wiped away. It, Jesus is saying this. Here's my argument for you. My perfect record of righteousness. I lived a life without sin. I am giving to you. So that now when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your imperfect record of righteousness. He sees my perfect record of righteousness over you and for you. Okay, are you seeing this? This is Jesus, your advocate, and his argument for you. His sin, it's pardoned. He is now in me. She is now in me, perfected. And can I just tell you, when you start to see that and live in that, and when you become wide awake to that, can I just tell you what it's going to free you to do? It's to be you with all of your junk too. To stop having to pretend with everyone that you're something that you're not. It, it would allow you to be totally honest about your shortcomings, about your failures, about your weaknesses, as opposed to living with this covering around your life, always trying to convince people that you're better than you really are. It'll allow you to deal honestly with God. 
It'll allow you to get before God and say, God, this is who I am and this is who I'm not. I need help. It'll allow you to do that in your home group. It'll allow you to get before community and a group of people and say, man, these, these are the goods, you know, in me. And this is all the bad. This is the whole picture, not just the picture that I want you to see. See, it's not until we are wide awake to that, that that we'll do that. I am in the process of trying to retrain my heart in how I hear criticism and uh, like people pointing out things in my life. I'm trying to retrain my heart to hear these things differently. So when people say, uh, Rodney, I noticed this about you. That's a problem. Your sermon was terrible. Your whatever. I mean, when they're pointing out things, I probably do need to know. I'm trying to retrain my heart to first think this. When they point something out, to first think if they only knew all of it. I mean, they're pointing something out, but here's the truth. They don't know the half of what they're getting into there. They're seeing some, but but all they're seeing, they're just scratching the surface. They have no idea what all the junk and nastiness is that lives under that. To retrain my heart to start there. That they don't know the half of what they're saying. They don't know how true what they're saying really is in this moment. And you know what's amazing? When your heart starts there, it's amazing how much more willing you are to actually hear and learn from people who are trying to help you. It's just amazing. And what would it be like if we had a community of people who our reflexive response to people was just probably far worse than you realize? And what would it be like to have a group of people, a church family, that was that free in the way we could talk about sin, talk about our failings, talk about our weaknesses, could confess sin like that to one another. So so number three, the third thing about real repentance is that it requires confession. It requires that sort of honesty, that sort of examining ourselves, that sort of a willingness to not defend and not pretend, to call sin what it is and to agree with God about that sin. And here's the fourth and last thing. And this is really good news, by the way, this last one. And I hope this is going to rescue some of us from a faulty view of repentance. Number four, real repentance results in celebration. It results in celebration. I want to uh, take you back to the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. It's a fairly familiar story. If you've read through your Bible a few times, you you probably remember that parable and that story. So let me just recount it for us. Here's how the story goes. There is a father that has two sons. And his younger son is the prodigal in the story. He demands from his father his inheritance, which was as disgraceful of a thing in that culture as as a son could do. He demands his inheritance, and then he takes the money, he grabs the money, and he runs to the far country where he squanders all of his father's inheritance with what the Bible calls reckless living. I mean, this guy is in the penthouse. He is the life of the party. He is buying all the friends. He he has got it going on. And it's amazing in the story how quickly he goes from the penthouse to the pigsty, isn't it? It's a remarkable journey and just how quickly that thing happens. And one day he wakes up in the middle of a pigsty realizing that these pigs have a better life than he does. And in this moment, the Bible says that the prodigal son came to his senses. Now that's a beautiful moment for, it, for us, isn't it? 
It's that moment where we start to see the world through a different lens. We start to see God through a different lens. We start to see our sin through a different lens, our life through a different lens, our sin through a different lens. He came to his senses. And then it says this, he began the long march home. And on that march home, back to his father, he is rehearsing his repentance speech. And this is what his speech sounded like in Luke 15. Verse 18 says this. Here was his speech. He says, I will arise and go back to my father. And by the way, that is the relational component of repentance. That it's going back, it's returning to our father. It's returning back to God. He says, I will arise and go back to my father. And I will say to him, this is his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see confession in there. You see conviction in there. You see all the little marks of repentance, but we're missing one big thing. And the Father's about to show us what that one big thing we're missing is. He goes on in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now for some of us in the room, we have been the prodigal who have been in a far country. And our sin is as disgusting and as despising as the prodigal who demanded his inheritance from his father. Our sin is that bad to God. And I I just feel like some of us need to hear this this morning because I think some of us might have this view, kind of like the prodigal son, of how is my father going to, like, how is this going to go when I come back to him? And can you just see how that goes in verse 20? While he's a long way off, his father saw him. It's a picture of how God responds to us when we repent. Arms wide open, it's met with grace. He sees him, he runs after him, he embraces him, he kisses him. That's what you can expect. So regardless of how far you have been from God, I want you to hear that this morning. That when you come to God authentically confessing, convicted of your sin, this this is what we can expect from God. But this is what was missing. Look at verse 21. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But here's the missing mark, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So do you see what's all there in that picture of repentance? There is conviction of sin, like actual sorrow and grief over the ugliness and the sinfulness of the sin. There is confession about that sin. Listen, and you cannot repent without those. You cannot do a sh- like an you know, like end around around conviction and confession and get to repentance. It requires, repentance requires us to go into the valley of conviction, sorrow and godly grief over sin. Into the valley of confession where we are siding with God against our sin. It requires us to go into that valley before we start climbing the hill up to celebration. But can we just see here that repentance ends not in down in the dust, confession and conviction, but up on the mountain of celebration. The father throws a party for him. 
kills the calf, gets the best robe, gets the ring, puts it back on his finger. This is the, this is the end result of repentance. It doesn't leave us down in the dust. It leaves us with God, refreshed with God. And you say, I, I think the natural kind of question will be, how in the world can we rejoice and celebrate in light of that sin? And do you know how you can do that? We have a perfect Jesus who covers that sin. The, the reason we can rejoice at the end of our repentance is because Jesus has actually paid the price for all of our sin, even the ugliest of it. You know, it's interesting. In Acts chapter 3, we've got this teaching on repentance. Where, where I think it's Peter and John are talking about repentance. And I think they're addressing what is a common misconception with it. That they say this about repentance. They're pleading with people to repent. Not so they will forever stay down in the dust, but here's what I say. This is their encouragement to repent. They say repent. Why? So that times of refreshment may come from the Lord. You see that? Repentance on one side leads to refreshment. How many of us could use that today? Repentance leads to restoration and refreshment. But that's the end game of repentance. See, I have this fear for a lot of us that when we think about repentance, our picture in our mind is we just stopped breathing to repent. It feels like that. Like we're suffocating. We're going to die if we do that. That is not the picture of repentance in the Bible. The picture of sin in the Bible is that it will suffocate us. Like your sin right now in your life, that's what's suffocating you. And what repentance is for a Christian is it is that moment where sin is suffocating us. Repentance is that moment where we inhale gospel air into our lungs again. That's repentance. Where, where we breathe in gospel air and we actually start to live and breathe and move again. That, that's repentance in the Bible. It doesn't leave you down in the dust. It leaves you with God, refreshed with God. Amen? So here's how I want to end uh, this sermon. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says this, examine yourself. You need to take a good, honest look at your heart. What, what it is that you are, what it is that you're not, you need to deal honestly with yourself. And, and not just so you'll see yourself clearly, but so that it will lead you to repentance. So that will lead you to right relationship with God, to returning to God. So with that said, I want you to go ahead and close your eyes and bow your head. I, I want to just give you some time to, to do some business with God this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.